the following text is amongst the most important in all of the Bible. And certainly in the New Testament, it's not exaggerating that, and I hope that comment prompts you to sit up and pay close attention. I say that it's supremely important because of what it declares, all right, what it teaches. But the Bible itself testifies to its being one of the most profound texts because in the New Testament alone, it is directly, directly cited or alluded to more than any other biblical text. In the New Testament alone, the truth of what we're about to read is addressed no less than 33 times. I trust that gives you an appreciation of its awesomeness. Of course, all of the Bible is the word of God. It's equally true, equally perfect, and therefore all of Scripture is held in a holy reverence. But if you would permit me, on this occasion, I'd like to ask you to stand for the reading of this passage, of this scripture reading. And by doing so, we're, we're showing a proper fear of God and, a, and an acknowledgement of the supremacy of Christ. All right, so if you're able, if you're so inclined with me now, please stand as we read together these three verses. It's from Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning with verse 35, the word of God. And as Jesus taught in the temple... He said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Amen. You may please be seated. Edgemont, a great throng was listening to these words of Jesus. The King James Version of the Bible refers to this large crowd as common people. Again, this passage is one of the most profound in Scripture texts, and we're told that the common people received it gladly. As your pastor, I have prayed for you regarding this particular sermon and specifics regarding this particular passage that you too would receive it gladly. For in this text is the culmination of the gospel, the good news. As you know, I always like to put, I always like to put the reading of our scripture readings into context before we begin to look closely at its exegesis all right, perhaps that's an unfamiliar word to you, exegesis. But exegesis is simply the explanation of the scriptures. All right, it's their interpretation and their teaching. All right, prior to Mark, uh, Mark 12.35, if you've been with us over the last handful of weeks, Jesus has been responding to many questions. You will remember that, of course. Some of them are genuine curiosities. But those posed from the religious establishment, the religious leaders whose livelihoods and whose societal honors were at stake, namely the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Herodians, 
They're all well-to-do, powerful men. These, this religious establishment, they generally pose questions to Jesus in order to trip him up and to make him look foolish or less learned than they. Right? Their desire wasn't to gain insight. It wasn't to become closer to God by way of some better understanding of his word. But instead, their desire was to diminish the authority and the credibility and even the popularity of the rabbi from Nazareth who claimed to be divine, claimed to be God. Jesus of Nazareth, who always was and who always is and will be divine. And it seems that they finally had had enough, for in the very verse prior to this morning's text, maybe you'll recall this from last week, in verse 34, we're told that from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. They knew they were defeated in their arguments with Jesus. But now here in verse 35, we have Jesus being on the offensive, right? He's not attacking, but he's in the temple, He's not answering questions or responding, but now he's teaching. He's proactively teaching to the crowds who had been listening to the pious leaders sparring with Jesus. But now Jesus here, he's got the microphone, so to speak. In this temple setting, the tables are now turned. This rabbi from Nazareth is now going to ask about something that the scribes proclaim. And they proclaim it rightly. You'll see in a moment that this is from the scriptures. Something that the intelligentsia, right, the legal experts, that they've been declaring about the Messiah. Now in this sermon, you're going to learn a little bit of Hebrew and a little bit of Greek. All of you will pass. There's no, there's no quiz. But this is actually necessary for you to rightly understand the text that's before us. Otherwise, trust me, you'll be confused. I'm going to start that language lesson with a brief reminder that Messiah, the word Messiah is a Hebrew word, which means anointed. In Jewish minds throughout the centuries of the Old Testament times, really since the Garden of Eden, Messiah was a title for the one who was promised by God to save Israel. God's chosen people. God promised a Messiah in the Garden of Eden. And this anointed one, this Messiah, was prophesied as an expected king that would come from the Davidic line. A king who would sit on David's throne, overseeing Israel with both authority and with protection. And who would deliver Israel from foreign bondage restoring the glories of its golden age, which they had under King David. Now, in Greek, the word Messiah is Christos, which we, in English, translate as Christ. And so Messiah, Hebrew, and Christ, Greek, they mean the same thing. They're both titles that mean anointed referring to the anointed one of God who will save God's people from their sins. All right, got that? That's the context. Now let's get on to the question. It's really a rhetorical question, one that Jesus doesn't expect hands to be raised from the crowd for an answer. 
There's no Hermione of Hogwarts here in Mark 12. All right? Maybe you know what I'm talking about when I reference Hermione. The question really is to get people thinking about who Jesus is. To help them see what Peter confessed in Matthew 16, 16, that this man teaching before them in this temple setting is the Christ. All right? He's the son of the living God, as Peter confessed. I'm going to read this again to you, these three verses. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he David's son? You may have caught that in our text, right, it states Jesus using the title Christ as opposed to Messiah. Verse 35, how can this, this is Jesus, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? But we're told that Jesus is teaching in the temple, which is reserved to the Jews, largely off limits to the Gentiles, except for the temple's outer court, in which anybody's allowed, Jews and non-Jews. It's possible that the audience here contains some Gentiles, but Jesus' interactions were mostly, during his ministry, they were mostly with Jews, And so it's likely that Jesus was teaching, right? He was speaking in Hebrew at the time and in the Hebrew street dialect of Aramaic, right? That's a form of Hebrew that evolved from Hebrew. It's like the common people's Hebrew language. And therefore, Jesus likely used the title Messiah in this verse 35, but that Mark, in his writing it, simply transcribed it into the Greek Christos, or in our English, Christ, because the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, I don't want to confuse you. I fear that I probably have. I thought, okay, I'm going to confuse some people with all this. But that was really an item more of, I think, interest and has nothing to do with the actual meaning of our text this morning. But I wanted you to have it because maybe you enjoyed that little bit of tangent. But if not, don't worry about it. It was simply an aside. I'm going to get right back to the text. Or we'll be here till 3 o'clock in time for game afternoon at 4. Jesus says, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? We need to get this point here now out of the way before we move further. I want to clarify some things. Jesus was the physical descendant of David. Regardless of what you may conclude from the two genealogical records that are contained in the Bible, one from Luke's gospel that records Jesus' lineage from his mother Mary, which goes back to Adam, and you're going to find David right there in Luke 2, verse 31. And the other genealogy, the one recorded in Matthew's gospel, which starts off with Abraham and then leads us to David in Matthew 1, verse 6. And then down the line to Jesus. The dissection of these genealogies, if you're going to look at them really closely, is not perfectly clear. And there is some scholarly debate about how to reconcile them. But for now, please understand that Jesus, however you parse these 
two family trees denoted in the Bible. He came from the physical line of David. Second Timothy, in chapter 2, verse 8, tells us to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. And then when Paul writes Romans, he starts off with describing himself as a servant of Christ. And then here we go. In verse 3 of that chapter 1 of Romans, Paul writes, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. Descended in the lineage of David according to the flesh. Not according to legal adoption papers, but according to the flesh. Jesus was the biological seed of David, who came from Jacob, right? And the wife and Jacob's wife Leah, then to Judah, and Judah's eventual wife and daughter-in-law, by the way, Tamar. Remember that story? Genesis 38. Tamar was married. Her husband's name was Ur, E-R, Ur. But he died. The Lord took him out because Ur was evil. Then Ur's brother, who was to carry on the family name for Tamar, Ur's brother Onan, he didn't follow through on his leveret obligation to impregnate Tamar. And so God killed him too. And then poor Tamar had to wait for the third brother to grow up, Shelah. So Shelah could perform that leveret duty of continuing the family name for Tamar. I've explained this once from the pulpit, but I'll do it again. Leveret duty. That's the Old Testament requirement that when a, the brother of a deceased man is obligated or obliged to marry his brother's widow so as to carry on the deceased brother's name through that widow. Right? Leveret. But father-in-law Judah, he withheld his youngest son, Shelah, from daughter-in-law Tamar. That was wrong, by the way. He shouldn't have done that. That went against God's leveret laws that he spelled out in the, uh, in the law of Moses. Judah was out of obedience with that leveret law. As well as, by the way, going against his promise to Tamar. And so Tamar took matters into her own hands and tricked Judah by pretending to be a prostitute. All right, we're dealing with real humans here, folks. She knew Judah's weaknesses, and she played up to those. She got pregnant by Judah and bore a son, Perez. Actually, she had twins, but Perez came out first. Then a few generations from Perez came Boaz, who married Ruth. Boaz and Ruth had a kid named Obed. Obed, who was David's grandfather, and Obed then birthed Jesse, David's dad. I don't mean to make your head spin with all of this. Maybe I've done that. Forgive me for that. But because David, I just want to show you that because David came from the genealogical line of Judah, right, Jacob's son Judah, that means that Jesus is from his tribe, the tribe of Judah. All right, now, if you're still with me, you'll need to go forward one chapter to Genesis 49, where in Jacob, he's on his deathbed. He calls his 12 sons to his side, and he begins one by one to pronounce 
onto them their inheritances, blessings, and curses, and with those, some containing prophecies. When Jacob gets to his fourth son, Judah, he prophesies that Judah's generations will experience victory and authority and kingship. But Edgemont, I want you to look at these prophecies as messianic prophecies. Yeah, they're coming out of the mouth of Jacob to Judah, but see them as messianic. I'll show you that in a second. We're to understand these prophecies as being fulfilled in one sense as Judah's physical earthly lineage. Absolutely. But in another sense, and more so, we should see these prophecies as messianic, as a foretelling of the Messiah, okay? of the, as, as a foretelling of the Lord of all, as King of kings, as Jesus the Christ. That's what's going on here in Genesis 49, verse 8. Jacob is convincing, or rather conveying, blessing and prophecy to his son Judah. I'll begin with verse 8. I'm going to read it to you. Judah, this is Jacob speaking. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. All right? Now, all of that, and in some cases, not only can all of that, but it does, all of that does apply to Jacob's son, Judah, which will manifest in his eventual descendant, David. Great warrior was David. Great politician. Indeed, great king was David. And in David, Israel had its zenith, its peak, of all of its national glory. It's never been more glorious. It was like the Renaissance period of Israel when he was in charge. But ultimately, this prophecy of Jacob to Judah is entirely fulfilled, not in Judah's descendant David, but further down the line in David's descendant, Jesus. Now I want to go through this together with you line by line. Verse 8. Judah, your brothers will praise you. All right, all of, all of Jacob's lineage will praise Jesus. Again, we're thinking of this messianically about the Messiah. The leaders of the 11 tribes will praise the leader of the tribe of Judah. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Okay, Jesus will be victorious over all of God's enemies. Your father's son will bow down to you. Again, every knee shall bow to this son. Verse 9, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Ever heard of Jesus being referred to as the Lion of Judah? This is where we get Revelation 5.5 from, which says, do not weep. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. That's Revelation 5.5. And then Jacob 
Back to Genesis, Jacob continues his prophecy of Judah's generations in Genesis 49, verse 10. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He to whom it belongs shall come. Okay, this is talking about Jesus as king, scepter, king, that he will reign on the throne forever, and there will be no descendants that ever take it from him, right? The staff between his feet will never be taken. That's the eternal throne which belongs to Jesus. And then lastly, at the end of verse 10, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. All nations are under the authority and kingship of Jesus. Indeed, he is the king of all kings, which makes him sovereign over everything and everybody. He's sovereign over the entire universe and all of that which it contains. So armed with that background, we have Jesus now in Mark 12 saying, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared. Now i got to pause there for a minute. Jesus says something that we can't miss. He teaches that David was declaring, authoritatively speaking, if you will, in the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit is another way of saying that. This is the testimony of Jesus, the very Lagos himself. Right in the beginning was the word, the Lagos, eternally, historically existing. The Son of God teaching here that the Jewish scriptures, our, our Old Testament, is breathed out by God. Breath, pneuma, it's where we get pneumatics from, air, breathed out by God, the Holy Spirit, pneumos in Greek. As 2 Timothy 3, 16 states, all scripture is breathed out by God, all right, which is produced, it's breathed out by him, the Holy Spirit. And that's why we do ourselves an immense disservice when we don't pursue, right, diligently pursue an understanding of the Old Testament. It's 39 books. It's two-thirds of your Bible. Genesis through Malachi. And here in Mark 12, verse 36, that's where Jesus goes to. He goes to the Old Testament. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, now where's that coming from? Psalm 110, verse 1, actually. And that verse says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right, that's Psalm 110, verse 1. That's what Jesus is quoting. Now, here's where you're going to be helped with a smidgen of Greek. In your New Testament rendering of this, the Hebrew word of Psalm 110 was translated into Greek. Okay? In your New Testament Bibles, now I want to ask my monitor person up there to place on the monitor, if you will, Mark 12, verse 36. Perfect. 
You'll see there that both lords, right? The Lord said to my Lord, they're spelled exactly the same way with a capital L and then little lowercase letters, O-R-D. In our English, in our English translation of that Greek, our English makes our understanding of this text more complicated, more confusing. But if you look at the Old Testament's quote of that, the Old Testament's rendering of that, which Jesus is quoting, it's going to be a little bit different. I'll go ahead and pop that up on the screen if you would. So we're looking for Psalm 100. There you go. No, that's not it. That's, that's 8-1. No, we're looking for Psalm 101. I'm sorry, 110. Did I say 100? Okay. I mistyped it to Nancy, who followed my directions perfectly. But leave that up there, because that's going to work. Sorry, Nancy. Do you see how Lord is all capped? That's the difference. Now I'm going to have to because it's not up there. I'm going to have to explain it a little bit to you. In Psalm 110, verse 1, which says, The Lord said to my Lord, The first Lord is in all caps. The second one is not. It's capital L with then followed by lowercase o-r-d. Those are different lords. So why this difference? And why is it important? Well, it's because we have numerous names and titles for God. When the scriptures refer to God as Lord, with all capitals, like it is there on your monitors, that's the English translation of the sacred name of God. The memorial name, what is really the ineffable name, ineffable, a fancy word, a name that is too great or too extreme to be fully understood or fully explained, described. It's the name by which God revealed himself to Moses in the Midianite wilderness when he said, I am who I am. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that I am, all caps, has been translated into the letters Y-H-W-H. No vowels, and frankly, we, we don't know how to pronounce it. We can guess, and we'll probably guess pretty closely, But the literal pronunciation of Y-H-W-H, we do not know. And the Hebrews, as an aside, left it that way because they were afraid to really speak the name of God. It was too holy for them. But we've ascribed the sounding out of Y-H-W-H as Yahweh. Y-H-W-H, or Yahweh, is God's name. It is not his title. The supreme title that is given to God, which we only capitalize with a a big L, followed by a little O-R-D, that title is Adonai, which means the one who is absolutely sovereign. Adonai is a title which means the one who is absolutely sovereign. So now, IT guru up top, if you'll put up Psalm 8, verse 1. Would you move that slide forward? There we go. This is a perfect example in the Psalms how that plays out. 
Our Lord, oh, sorry, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Okay, you see the difference there? O Yahweh, our Adonai, that's how that's to be read. But you see how those two lords are written differently, right? One with all caps. That's David actually saying, O Yahweh, our Adonai, or O great I am, our sovereign. How majestic is your name in all the earth. Thank you. Back to Mark 12, if you don't mind, or just the header slide, that'd be cool. Let's get back to Mark 12, where Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110. Here we have Yahweh calling someone else Adonai, right? The great I am. God is calling someone else sovereign. Mark verse 36, of which Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, verse 1, which is up on the monitor as well. It's not because I got the quote wrong, the, the, the citation wrong. David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So who is it? Who is being addressed in this psalm by the Lord God omnipotent as Adonai? It doesn't say that the Lord said to himself, Adonai. This is David writing, right? David writing in the Holy Spirit. David says, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, in other words, David's sovereign. David's sovereign is being told by God, by Yahweh, to sit at Yahweh's right hand. You know who that sovereign of David is, of course. This Adonai is Jesus, the ascended Jesus. We know that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father because Hebrews 10 tells us so. Verses 12 and 13 of Hebrews 10, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Kind of sounds like Psalm 110. Now we're connecting the dots of Scripture, We've, of God's redemptive story here, which is Always a good thing to do. We've looked at Genesis, we've looked at Psalms, we've looked at Mark, we've looked at Revelation, and now we're looking at Hebrews, and they're very consistent. I know we're running long. Bear with me. I knew we would. Not much longer. But stay with me on this here. Why is it important that Jesus sits? Well, as we go through the biblical narrative of the work of Jesus, there are special moments in his life and in his ministry that are of huge importance in terms of redemptive history. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, right? Christmas. We take very seriously, of course, the death of Jesus with special ceremonies on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. And at the end of Holy Week, we join in great joy and glory celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, There's many redemptive events in history. Those are just some of them. There's many one-time events that are critical to the redemptive story that our triune God planned and that he accomplished. But the one that we often overlook is this seating of Jesus at the Father's right hand. 
This event, by the way, is called the session or the session of Jesus. You know here at Edgemont that we're governed by a session of elders or presbyters. These elders make up what we call the session because when they meet to deliberate, to establish policy and give supervision to our spiritual lives, they don't do it standing up. They meet and do this deliberation sitting down. They govern sitting down, which is why when in our United States, when the Congress is meeting to govern our land, they vote sitting down. And we say that the Congress is now in session. And so this morning, when you recited the Apostles' Creed, you professed to believe that Jesus, your Adonai, your sovereign, sitteth at the right hand of, of Yahweh, God Almighty. But what does this Adonai do? What's he doing when he sits there? Well, the answer is in your text. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. All right, this Adonai, Jesus, the sovereign one, he rules there. From whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead. All right, Jesus governs. He rules and he judges. Our kingdom, his kingdom, that we're citizens of, is not a democracy. It's not a republic or some version of a socialist or communist, a communist state. The kingdom of God is ruled by a monarch. Okay, it's a monarchy by an absolute king, a sovereign. I'm going to close with this. In Mark 12, 37, Jesus says, David calls himself Lord. So how is he, his, so how is he David's son? Well, now you know the answer to that. You can probably do the rest of the sermon close here. In all of our biblical history, and I would guess that this is also true of all of our worldly societies throughout the globe, it is the lesser that pays homage to the greater. It's the son who pays homage to the father, not the other way around. And so if Jesus is David's physical progeny, which you know he is, How is it then right for David, the 13th grandfather of the son of Mary, how is it proper for David to call Jesus Lord? If Jesus is his great, 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 whatever, 13 down the road grandson. Well, it's because this man is David's Adonai, who was the promised one to sit on David's throne forever. Connecting more dots here. 2 Samuel chapter 7. God, in all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh, is speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. And God says this to David in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. Some people get confused. How can David's kingdom be forever? Well, that king on David's throne, that's Jesus. The Adonai who sits at Yahweh's right hand. The one who rules as the ultimate sovereign. And that's exactly, by the way, why this large crowd listening to Jesus received his words gladly. They yearned. For centuries, they've been yearning for this Messiah to come and rescue them, this sovereign, to rule over them perfectly and absolutely. 
And the same goes for us this morning. We, we can be delighted about this sovereign because he's a redeemer. This Lord, this Adonai can be both your Lord and your Savior. So believe in him, Edgemont. Why wouldn't you? Believe in him. Repent of your sins. And live in Jesus, walking in faith throughout your days, trusting in him for everything. All right, everything. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, we acknowledge to you that nothing is more important to us than the Messiah, your eternal Son. And so we pray for him to meet with us, to save us, to keep us, to fill us, and of course to use us. All for your glory. In his name we pray. Amen.